one of the things I give Paul Tremblay credit for is that as nice of a guy as he is in real life when you meet him, when you're reading his fiction, you're like, I this guy's capable of anything, and you don't know if you're in you never know if you're safe while you're reading. And I feel like you shouldn't know if you're safe in a movie like this to to have it work. I think we're the audience for that. Yeah. This is what I mentioned last week at the end of the episode when we we're making predictions. Like I thought that there would be sort of a generalizing or like a sanitizing of the material a little bit to make it more palatable to general audiences and to a film going audience. I, I can agree that that happened and still be frustrated that it happened because I totally, don't, because yeah. I, I also think that that's the impetus behind the change, but I don't know that that always, the result is what people want. I always think that the, the result of a movie that's going to last and going to reach an audience that's going to love it is making a great movie. That should always be the first and foremost thing. And appeasement to some generalized audience who you assume certain things about is a frustrating way for a filmmaker to go about making these kind of decisions. Friends to episode 258 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. This week, we discuss M. Night Shyamalan's 2023 film, Knock at the Cabin. So this is the first film we've gone to see in, that's actively in a theater, I think, in a little while. A while, yeah. Um, and that's not by design, because, you know, I like the theater going experience. I go to the theater often. But uh, yeah, it was fun to do one for the podcast. Yeah, I think you go more than I do. I I like going to the movie theater, but I don't um I don't get out to do it as much as I want to. I want to do it more. Uh, it's just you know it's a little weird these days to to do. And and honestly, the experience is always kind of weird here. One of the theaters that's close to me that I like, um, the IMAX theater, right? Like if I wanted to go see IMAX, it's such a bizarre thing. Like they've permanently closed their like giant parking lot they have, and you have to park across the street at the mall. And then and then cross this like pretty big street to get, even get to the theater. It's very weird. And and it's been like years now that they've they've closed this parking lot, and it's just sitting there. Nope, it's not being used for anything. It's kind of weird how a lot of theaters are in this transitional period. And obviously, the AMC is in the news with like this fucking Ticketmaster esque experience of buying a seat and you oh, know, really? surge pricing kind of. Yeah, like if you want a good seat in the theater, you have to pay more for that. And then the the ones in the very front are cheaper. They're doing like fluctuating pricing and that's a whole super stupid thing that amc is doing they're just shooting themselves in the foot but desperate to make money though because i think uh, you know just the theater system in general is just not making money it's just not how i would go about trying to make money no i no i agree but it's it's the unfortunate shit you see you'll see companies doing when they're getting desperate i think yeah they're trying to save the bottom bottom line but my theater going experience was kind of interesting because this transitional period too that i didn't know and i should have looked on the website it said something about it when i got there i looked but as i rolled up to the theater that that is kind of nearby it's not it wasn't an imax but it was a regal prime experience so it was like good projection good sound no mine wasn't in imax it was just an imax theater so just to be clear, I don't know that this movie 
was released in IMAX. Maybe it was, but not not where I'm at. No, yeah. I think I think Avatar is solidly taken up all the IMAX. Yeah, Avatar was was in the IMAX. Yeah, for sure. This theater, I roll up and there's a blue tarp completely over it, almost as if it's being fumigated. But it oh, said no. specifically, you're it's open. So I'm walking up to a full on construction site, literally like an excavator. Like you walk into this path and it says, "Yes, we're open." And it's like a construction. You know how they'll have like scaffolding over top of you with like yeah. plywood to protect you. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, we're open, Frequently. head in. Yeah. So I walk in. The walls are stripped. The, the floors are stripped. <laughs> Everything's concrete. There's still a concession stand. And I can't. This is a theater that I've been to many, many times. Yeah. And uh, not my favorite theater, but just one that was no, close by. Right. Good timing for, for when I wanted to go see it. And as I walk in, just like there's people like hammering nails on the walls of the lobby right. and stuff. And I'm like, this is incredible. And I think what we're seeing is this moment where it's like breaking down and selling off or they're be- they're building back up, which I think this one is. They're building up to try to create an experience you can't replicate yeah. at home. That's the way I think to the path forward. I mean, we're way off topic here, but for theaters, for me, is like truly make it into an experience that you can't get at home, not just the size of screen, but everything about it. Right. It needs to feel like an event. It needs to feel like a fun time out with friends. You know, it, you need to lean into all that stuff to make it to make it work. I think my theater itself probably had about, I don't know, 30, 40 people, uh, if I were to guess, which is not bad, especially because I went and saw a matinee on Saturday. Um, so I'm assuming like Friday night, Saturday night, even for a scary movie, probably more well attended. So it felt like to me that the movie was doing pretty well. I didn't really look into it, but I saw a headline somewhere that said that it outperformed Avatar over the weekend. So it seems like it actually did pretty good, which I'm glad because I think that brings more eyes to Paul Tremblay's work. Um, and we covered the novel last week and we were both fans uh, of the novel and, you know, uh, I've seen some comments from some of our listeners about how some people didn't like it. And, and um, I, you know, I listed like three reasons why I thought people might check out. And there are other reasons that people can have to not like the movie, uh, to not like the book. Um, but, uh, you know, I stand by the fact that I like the novel a lot. I think it's a good novel. I do understand that it's not going to be for everyone. But um, my my takeaway from this film was that, like, I was frustrated with it. A few smart changes and then a lot of changes I did not think were smart. Um, and it ultimately left me feeling very frustrated. And then when I was, cause like when we go see these movies in a theater, I'm not taking notes during the movie. You know, I don't want to be that guy with my phone up distracting people. Um, so what I do is I sit and w- at the end of the movie, once the credits roll and I sit in my chair and like write down a bunch of just random rapid fire thoughts. So because of that, I don't get as many like detailed moments. Cause when I watch at home, I'm pausing. And actually writing out thoughts during the film, usually. Um, and because of that, I was able to like write out my kind of rapid fire frustrations I was having. But then I remember uh, I got in the car and I was driving home and I'm just thinking, I'm playing it over and again in my head, just playing the whole movie in my head and just getting more and more frustrated. <laughs> so by the wow. time I got home, I was almost angry about the movie. Um, so I wrote down some stronger thoughts. Um, some of those have mellowed off a little bit, but like, the, yeah, I I got pretty mad about some of the stuff that, that was changed in this film, um, and I can't really get too into it in this sort of spoiler-free section we're in now, um, so I'm going to save a lot of that, so, but if you want to hear my, like, breakdown as to why I was angry with this movie, uh, I guess wait for the spoiler section, um, but just in general, I will say, um, ultimately, I think this was a very frustrating adaptation um, had a lot of potential, but I think it missed it. And, um, that, that is in a way even more frustrating, right? 
interesting that you feel this way because I yeah I where are you at with it? I was more just like okay, you know, it was like I knew that there were going to be changes. I knew in in the adaptation process that tends to happen. I, I walked away saying, oh, it's fine. I think it's a serviceable Shyamalan film. It, it feels like it has some of the trappings of Shyamalan, and I think they did some cool stuff with the design of the film and the way that it looks and the way that they use the cabin as a character and, and some of that other stuff. But um, yeah, I'm interested to see if you you your response to it is because you're so close to the material. Because um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on like, what do you think the average moviegoer is going to walk away having the same thoughts? I think a lot of people are where you're at. I think a lot of people felt like it was okay. Um, I think a lot of people are going to think this movie ended up being kind of forgettable. Like, yeah, that was a fun experience. I'm not going to be talking about this movie in five years. It's not going to be on any lists. When I think about M. Night Shyamalan movies, it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's not his worst outing, um, but it's not one of his like, oh, M. Night Shyamalan is back movies. Either. Yeah, that is true. Last last week, I kind of was hoping at the end of the episode, I, I talked about how like, oh, I'd love to see this resurgence of Shyamalan. This wasn't his like welcome back moment right. or anything. And and I think how you feel about that will determine, you know what I mean? Like I that frustrates me because I think this movie had the potential to be that comeback movie to be something people are talking about five years from now. And it's frustrating to me to see it get in its own way and make some, in my opinion, kind of boneheaded decisions in the adaptation process that really sabotages the movie and keeps it from being great. It doesn't make it a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. It's just not a great movie. And I might even debate whether or not it's a good movie. Um, but it's okay. It's an okay movie. And that ultimately is frustrating for me for this material that I think had a lot of potential. So you mentioned how it did over the weekend. It made 14.1 million in America this weekend. And I think it's on a budget of like 20 million. So it's no, no, pretty much no question going to make its money back. It seems like it's doing well. It not, you know, it's making headlines because it knocked Avatar off the spot, but Avatar has been in that spot for seven weeks at this point. Um, so, you know, at some point, everyone's seen it, and they go to see it a second time, and then they're done seeing it. I, total aside, but like Avatar is the strangest movie because, like, I don't know a single person who seems to be excited about this movie. I was gonna say I don't know I don't know anyone who's seen it. I, mean, I know like three people who've seen I it. I think I know a couple people who've actually seen it. Yeah, I but haven't like, gone to see it yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet either. And a, a lot of people who who um, talk about it are like, yeah, it was all right. But like the movie is doing gangbusters. It's got so it's been sold so many tickets. It's unbelievable. It's James Cameron. It's yeah. I, and like I don't know. I, this is totally off topic. But Avatar is not the <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. I need to turn the lights in here blue if we're gonna keep talking about Avatar. It made a lot of money in the first one. It was like it was a big cultural moment for for you know fully CG environments and the 3D in film and and it was a huge event. People were like, you know, can James Cameron replicate it? I was like, no, he probably can't replicate it, but it'll probably make a lot of money. And then just way more people went to see it than I would have thought. You know what I think it was, too, is it's a sci-fi that people who aren't into sci-fi got into. Yeah. And that that kind of... Visual spectacle movies seem like they do well, especially for getting people to go out to the theater. So, like, hats off to James Cameron for being able to do that. And let's talk about that in context of this film. I think this film looked pretty good. I was really happy with how it looked. I agree. Um, It was shot on 35 millimeter film using anamorphic lenses so that he's kind of trying to call back to his like 90s thrillers sort of. Oh, cool. So like signs, you're saying like that era? Yeah, like Sixth Sense signs, that that kind of area. And basically anamorphic lenses like they, they you know, your 35 millimeter s- film strip has a certain aspect ratio and then you shoot it on an anamorphic lens and it it basically squashes the image onto that film strip. And then in post, it, like when you're projecting it back out, 
it re re uh, distributes that to be like even ratio. And basically in doing that, you create like different like aberrations in the focus, the way that the focus looks and certain like lens lens flares and things like that. So it's kind of a certain look that that I think a lot of filmmakers feel is super cinematic. And that's cool that, that that's the way that comes out. Because I always assume that's some sort of digital effect these days when I see it. No, I mean, any most most filmmakers worth their salt are going to go for like true. I mean, lens flares are a thing that if you think of like the the J.J. Abrams ones, yes, those a lot of those were digital, but there were also some real ones in there. Um, but, but specifically the way that like they're playing with the depth of field and the look like different lenses give you different textures. And, and like I said, different, the way that like a light out of focus in the background will create like a different kind of star or shape. And like some of the, some of the time it, it lends itself to look more cinematic because of the language of film that we've built up over a hundred years. That's what we think of as cinematic. And they do a good job with that because they're in, you know, it's not, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that most of this movie takes place in a single location and you have to sell it as being an interesting visual thing to look at for a, you know, one and a half hour movie. Um, and I think that that lens and that that choice does a lot of that yep. work. It's, I thought great use of, of close up in the film, especially the first scene, which we'll get to very soon. I thought I thought very Dutch scene. angle, right? Like it kept being Dutch angle between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, that's a fun choice to do. It's a little heavy handed, maybe just because I'm aware of it. But um, it was it worked. It worked for the scene. And I can't help but like that. That was something that like I think we're going to need to bring up often is I kept thinking about people who didn't read the book and, and thinking about like a general audiences, how they're going to respond to this. Because I don't know if it was super, it, it, you because know, we talked about expectations and what the scene, the first scene kind of makes you think it's going to be when you were reading the book. And I think audiences were probably coming to the scene with a similar expectation. Now, the reason I think it is a little heavy handed, even if you haven't read the book, is that Leonard walking out of the woods to talk to Wynne when she is alone and even just saying some of the stuff that he says is very creepy. I don't know that you need so many Dutch angles, like maybe one or two, but it felt like it was a lot of it in a row to try and like emphasize how creepy the situation is. And it felt excessive to me because I didn't need that to understand that this is not right. This is an inappropriate yeah. kind of thing happening here. Yeah, I, I get that. There's a certain line, I think, that you have to try to walk with it being visually interesting as well. Now, I'll fully grant that if I liked the movie... If I liked the movie better overall, I probably wouldn't be nitpicking. This is the kind of thing you do when you've kind of turned on a movie, which I have a little bit for this one, unfortunately. You know, I wanted to like this movie. Uh, we'll, we'll get into reasons why I didn't end up liking it. but I thought it was fun to see a lot of the different uh, actors in these roles in this cast list, uh, specifically, you know, Batista as Leonard. He's the star of the movie. Um, I think he, he is probably the one performance that I would walk away saying... I'll think about when I think about this movie. I'll think about Dave Bautista here. He had a really good one. I also thought Rupert Grant gave a performance I didn't know that he had. This sort of like... That was fun. Um, I think that it's almost in a meta way. You cast him so that people don't know who he is at first. And then at some point while they're watching, have a realization of, oh my God, that's, uh, you know, uh, Harry Potter fame, Rupert Grant. Yeah, Ron Weasley. <laughs> Ron Weasley. I actually um, thought yeah. everyone in, in in the four, Abby Quinn, who played uh, Adrian, there's a scene that we'll get to that I thought she was excellent in. Yeah, she didn't have a lot. Like, all of them don't have a ton of, like, moments to really shine. They have their chances, though. Um, I thought they were all solid. And and that's kind of my, my takeaway from a lot of the performances is I felt like they were solid. There wasn't, like, a lot of 
weak spots for anybody. Jonathan Groff, um, I'm a huge I love fan Jonathan of Groff, from, yeah. from uh, Mindhunter in particular, but I've seen him in other stuff where he's very good. Oh, I thought you were going to say Hamilton. You know I'm not a Hamilton guy. Um, <laughs> um, but, I, I, you know, I like him a lot. I, I thought he was just okay here. And and it's not and not as a knock on him. I think a lot of it was held back by some of the decisions I'm going to get into. Yeah. I actually think Ben Aldridge, who plays Andrew, had a lot more, like, scene-chewing performance to give. Yeah. If I had to pick between the two of them, I'd probably give it to Aldridge yeah, yeah. as well. But we got to talk about Kristen. I think her name is Qy or Q, uh, who is when. Yeah, she was great for for a kid. For her age, you could tell that she really was the age that was supposed to be from the story. And I, there were times that there's like moments where you're like, this is a child actor, so you give a certain like amount of leeway. Yeah. But for, for all the emotion that she had to go and the range and stuff, I, I thought she did a great job. I agree. And then even Dave Bautista, who I said, you know, is probably my main takeaway is the star and who had the best performance at, uh, of anybody. Um, I still felt like it was kind of uneven at times because of the things he was being asked to do. Um, and maybe that's just because I didn't like what was being done. Um, but I, I felt like there were moments he sold better and there were moments he didn't sell as well. So, eh, I don't know. It, it, it's like, you, it's hard to have a truly standout performance in a movie like this that I think takes some, some major missteps. I think it's cool to see Shyamalan reach to somebody like Batista because Batista hasn't really had a role quite like this yet. And I think that it was a good showcase for him. It's cool to see him kind of lead a movie like this. Yeah. yeah. I think the same can be said for like Rupert Grant. We just saw him in Cabinet of Curiosities. And that was the only reason I was able to immediately recognize him, I think. Because if I hadn't just seen him there, I don't. it would have taken me a minute. He's in this other show that Shyamalan makes called Servant on Apple TV that I haven't seen, but I have heard good things. So they're, they're kind of collaborating together frequently. I think that's a good point to kind of break in and talk about Shyamalan a little bit. Because there's a lot, that, I think there's a lot of baggage that comes with this director. Right. Should we give our just like a brief overview of our history with him? Sixth Sense, I love. I still think that's a great movie to this day. Um, seen it multiple times. Signs, I think it's good. I think there's it has some like weird kind of weak parts, but overall, good movie. Um, was it The Village? I saw in the theater and I liked, but I feel like I've, I've never seen it again and I'm kind of worried too because I, I don't think it's going to hold up, but I, I don't know. I think it's better than people give it credit for. I think it's yeah. kind of thought of as one of his worst films and, and I don't know that I believe in that. I, yeah, I don't agree with that. Um, I saw, what was the one called? It was called like something, Shape of Water or something with water. Not Shape of Water. That's the other oh, one. Oh, Lady in the Water. Lady in the Water. Yeah. I didn't like that at all. That was the the f- one I saw that I was like, oh, this is, he's he's taking a, a bad turn here. I had heard Avatar was bad, but I'm I'm not like the biggest Avatar, uh, The Last Airbender fan. Um, so I just haven't, I haven't like watched the cartoon. So um, because of that, I never saw it. But everybody said it was awful and not to see it. So that was kind of the reason I did. Lady in the Water um, came first, though. It was Lady in the Water, then The Happening. Have you seen it? The Happening? I did see The Happening. And that it's was... like one of the most unintentionally funny movies I've ever seen. Yeah, that life. was bad. Yeah, there was a few bad ones in there. And then I, I kind of checked out at that point, And I don't think I've seen most of the stuff he's made since. I He did um, Unbreakable, right? He did, yeah. That was I did like Unbreakable. Great. Yeah, I liked Unbreakable. Unbreakable. Yeah. Especially that, that time period of superhero material was kind of way different than what we're at now. And that was like a fun way for him to kind of jump into comic books in that era. And and I bring all this up because I was thinking a lot about Paul Tremblay because I, I talked about last episode how like I kind of know him. Um I'm not friends with him. Um but I know him a little bit. I've met him a few times. And um I also like know some people that he knows. We know we have some mutual friends. Um and I was thinking about like what it would his position he's in 
agreeing to have an M. Night Shyamalan adaptation of his work. Might not even have been an agreement. Might have been they had the rights and they gave it to him and he was along for the ride. Yeah, I guess I don't know for sure. But in the, in the situation where you hear that M. Night Shyamalan's going to adapt your work, like I would be super excited. Like there's enough like big hits here in uh, Shyamalan's career, you know, that I would I would be so hopeful. Um, and I don't know how he feels about this movie. I don't know if he's got enough distance from it to where he can even fully tell how he feels about the movie. As the author, you kind of are obligated to promote it and talk well about it. It's your material on screen, so I feel like you're going to be predisposed to probably like it. I don't know. I just like reading the tea leaves of some of his tweets and stuff. It seems like there's maybe a little bit of hesitancy to be a full-throated supporter of the adaptation. You're very close to it, so you might not like it for that reason. Let me let me jump in and, and give some of my background with Shyamalan, and we can lead this into like what, what this would be like. Um, so The Sixth Sense, obviously incredible. Unbreakable, Signs, The Village, still on board with all of those. Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Last Airbender. Now, Lady in the Water, it was like, you know, at the time I was like, whatever, you know, you can't hit a home run every time. Yeah, I thought that movie had a couple of okay parts to it, but overall was bad. Um, and then The Last Airbender was when it was like a breaking point for me because I'm a massive fan for a lot of, of the cartoon. And that was like a slap in the face more than yeah. anything. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. out I, Just from a material standpoint, I was upset. And then there's, you know, the whitewashing that goes into it as well at that time period with all the characters, you know, posed as characters that are different ethnicities in the cartoon were all white actors. And so that was that was huge for other people. Then he did After Earth with Will Smith and his son. And then a couple years go by, he makes The Visit, which was the first time After Earth is also not very good. Um, the Visit. And I saw this movie kind of just being like, this is no one would fund his material anymore. So he had to go and he filmed this in secret on his own, uh, made it for like five million dollars. And then was a, it was eventually picked up by Universal and it went on to make like one hundred million dollars. Yeah, I have heard that, that he's he's made a lot of these small budget films that are outperforming their budgets. Horror movies, it's kind of a cheat code if you start to think about it. It's You, you can get it a, sm- a smaller budget film made, and horror movies people love to go see in the theater. It's a, mut- it's a, it's a communal experience. It's an experience to go with your friends, yeah. which is the complete opposite of what I did. I went and saw this by myself, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it's good, you can you can have a really low budget and make a lot of money. That's, that's fantastic for any, you know, up and coming filmmaker. Anyway, he's trying to reestablish himself in the, and then he, he goes and makes split. I'm not going to talk about split in any significant way, but there is kind of in a, in a crazy way, he's back to his twist, which like he, he's known for his twist endings. Split and glass are, are kind of both that situation. I don't want to talk any more about that, okay. yeah. <laughs> but if you know what I'm talking about, you know, okay. uh, and then he had old somewhat recently, which mixed reviews. I actually had fun with it. And this was one of the ones that I was mentioning. Like, I'm just happy there's a filmmaker who's making these type of weird concept films. Uh, and I like sort of where his head's at. And I like that he's an established director that can get good vision. And, and like you watch his films and they're, they're well directed for the most part. Um, and then we're at Knock at the Cabin. So he, he, like I said, he's kind of built up some goodwill at this point to where he's, he's on his way to, to getting bigger and bigger budgets and bigger projects. And this felt like the moment for him to really, like we've said, turn everything back around and, and put himself back on the map. But in getting into his background, I'm realizing that like he's not interested in just doing the thing that's popular. And especially because he got burned early on by like his reputation, sort of having people saying like, oh, all he does is twist endings. All he does is that people sort of boxed him in and thought they knew what he was and that sort of thing. And so it's it's kind of cool to see him coming back around on the other side. 
Uh, but yeah, so this filmmaker comes and is able to adapt some of your work. I think you, you're in on it every time because you're willing to take the chance with somebody who at different times in his career was basically shown as, and for better or for worse, after The Sixth Sense and, and um, Signs, people were talking about this person as the next Spielberg, like that that level of talent and fame. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so frustrated with this movie, ultimately, is because the potential was there. Um, and you know, like, it, we haven't talked to enough about how scary this movie is as a horror movie and unfortunately you know i know i guess i'd say it's hard because i know what's a lot of what was going to happen but these scenarios should be terrifying and i found them to just be okay like somewhat scary but like i didn't think he did a great job at truly portraying how horrifying this scenario would be did you feel like it was the horror versus the tension? Like, did you think he did tension well? Or did you think that none of that was working for you? It was all okay. It's like nothing standing out. It's like, oh, man, he did that so well. Like, I don't know. Um, and then, and, and like, I thought this movie was going to be more kind of brutal than it was. Yeah. I felt like it was. It, it's rated R. It's rated R. I, I felt like it was trying to not be rated R to me. It felt like it was trying to go PG-13. That's amazing. If you're If you're already rated R, like. Show me some injuries that make me wince. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of that. Like, it felt like it was the camera was pulling away a lot, um, trying to be kind of, like, tasteful, let stuff occur off screen. But that's not as, like, scary in the way that it would be, especially when our... It's important, I think, that our three main victims here are witnessing this. They're seeing it. Yeah. That's what's so terrifying. It's happening right in front of their eyes. And, like... There is, of course, a moment where that where that does occur, but like it doesn't happen much. I think we should save any more than that for the spoiler section. Yeah, you're right. Um, We're getting close. We're getting close. This to is spoilers. Uh, touching around some stuff. So let's talk about Shyamalan, and then we'll move into spoilers. Minaj Neliatu M. Night Shyamalan is an Indian American filmmaker and actor. He is best known for making original films with contemporary supernatural plots and twist endings. He was born in Mahe, India, and raised in Penn Valley, Pennsylvania. The cumulative gross of his films exceeds $3.4 billion globally. His early films include Prayer with Anger and Wide Awake, before his breakthrough film The Sixth Sense, which earned him Academy Award nominations for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay. Shyamalan is also one of the executive producers and occasional director of the 20th television science fiction series Wayward Pines and the Apple TV psychological horror series Servant, for which he also serves as showrunner. Shyamalan's parents immigrated to the United States when he was six weeks old. He grew up in Penn Valley and was raised Hindu. He attended a private Roman Catholic grammar school followed by a private Episcopal high school located at the time in Marion Station, Pennsylvania. He felt like an outsider and remembers that teachers would say that whoever was not baptized would go to hell. When he was a student there, a teacher once became upset because he, quote, got the best grade and he wasn't Catholic. Shyamalan earned the New York University Merit Scholarship in 1988 and was also a National Merit Scholar. He's an alumnus of New York University Tisch School of Arts in Manhattan, and it was while studying there that he adopted Knight as his second name. So Shyamalan's early desire to be a filmmaker goes back to when he was given a Super 8 camera at a young age. He, his father wanted him to follow in the family practice of medicine, but his mother pushed for him to follow his passion. By the time he was 17, he had made 45 home movies 
And on each DVD he releases of one of his films, beginning with The Sixth Sense and with the exception of Lady in the Water, he's included a scene from one of these childhood movies which he feels represents his first attempt at the same kind of film. Wow, that's an interesting little thing. That's which, cool. That's pretty fun, right? So some funny notable things that I that I uh, read through in his bio. He co-wrote the screenplay for Stuart Little with Greg Brooker, which <laughs> totally different kind of material. One of our one of our um, listeners, I think, commented that in our Discord. Oh, channel. really? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's funny. Yeah, and then he also uh, was revealed as the ghostwriter for the 1999 film She's All That, a teen comedy starring Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So we're getting up close to where we're going to switch into spoiler talk, but I want to like give our recommendations for people before we get there. How would you how would you talk about this movie for someone who is maybe on the fence about it? Should they go see it in the theater? Should they check it out later? Should they not watch it at all and read the book? Like, how do you feel about it? I think that's a cool way to go about recommending things as well as like rush out to the theater to see it, catch it at home or catch it like way after the fact at home uh, or just not see it. So in general, I'm not going to tell anybody to rush out to see this movie, but I think there's some th- some stuff here that, that's worth seeing. I think it's better than some of the standard fare that's out there, um, and especially if you didn't read the book, because with again, without spoiling anything, if you're a book purist on this one, I don't think this is going to be necessarily what you are expecting. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm torn. I, you know, I've already kind of expressed that I'm very frustrated with this movie in a lot of ways. Um, so ultimately, I'm not going to recommend people see it in the theater. Um, but if you want to, you know, more power to you. I'm not, you know, it's not a mistake. Um, but I would say if you like the movie at all, you should totally check the book out. Because um, I think it's, you know, getting ahead of ourselves. I think it's the better version. I think it's obvious, right, that, that that's how I feel. So my hope is that this movie can be the thing that leads you to the book. Because ultimately, I think that's where the more enjoyable version of the story is. I agree with that. I mean, like, it's going to be the case. You should, you should, and often we say that you should check out the, the book anyway, just because there's always a lot of material there. If you're a fan of either way, I, I've always been the kind of person that wanted to, to know the full story uh, one way or the other. Yeah, we usually do that at the end of the episodes. It's a little weird that we're doing it now, but um, <laughs> um, we, I, I have a lot of thoughts that I want to explain how I got there. So please stick around uh, for that part. All right, so now's about the time I think we should move into the plot. Before we do, uh, I want to go ahead and announce that we are going to be covering um, Rashomon coming up, uh, but we're actually taking next week off. So off week, we'll release something from the vault, follow that week up with our Rashomon coverage, which is uh, a Kira Kurosawa uh, film that uh, I know is one that you really, really love. It's based on a short story, and when I found that out fairly recently, I was like, oh, God, we got to do this now. And now that I know that it's actually based on a short story, I'm so excited. Highly influential film that would go on to shape a lot of directors that we see today. Yeah. Interesting storytelling method that I think that we're going to get to dig into a lot. And with the, the master, Akira Kurosawa, like I, I can't wait. It's again, I love talking about this because it's one of the films that I studied in film school. So that, there you go. You know, whenever that's the case, I think <laughs> there's a lot to dig into with a film. Yeah. So hopefully you, you uh, check that one out in a couple weeks. All right, man, are you ready to talk spoilers about this movie? Because I've got a lot of them built up. Yeah, let's do it. I have three sections of plot here, and I will start with the first one. Seven-year-old Gwen is vacationing with her parents, Eric and Andrew, at their remote cabin in rural Pennsylvania. While staying there, Gwen is approached by a mysterious stranger named Leonard. Initially, he seems charming and explains that he needs Gwen and her parents' help to save the world. However, while Wen and Leonard spend time catching grasshoppers, she becomes suspicious when three other people show up with makeshift weapons. 
Wen flees to warn Eric and Andrew, but the visitors break into the cabin, tie them up, and Eric sustains a concussion. Leonard and his companions Sabrina, Adrian, and Redmond claim that they have never met before this day and have no intention of harming the family. However, in the past week, they have been driven by visions and an unknown force to find the family. The group foresees an impending apocalypse in which Leonard claims that the ocean will rise, a pandemic will spread, the sky will fall, and finally, an eternal darkness will envelop the earth. The only way to prevent this is for the family to sacrifice one of their own. They are warned that although they will survive the apocalypse, if they do not make a choice, they will be the last people alive. So a lot of this is very similar. Not a lot of the deviations have occurred yet here. Um, I thought the opening scene with Wynn and Leonard honestly was good. Um, You know, I had my little nitpicks earlier, maybe a little heavy handed at times, but I don't care. Like ultimately it worked really well. Um, And then even that initial knock and the, the negotiation between the door um, with just these voices kind of echoing from outside, that was pretty scary. And I thought all of this was working well. And at this point in the movie, I'm happy. <laughs> um, it, you know, I, I think uh, setting up the the stakes is good. Setting up the situation, as we talked about in the book last time, um, it starts to beg the question. And that's what this question of the movie is all about. Is what these people are saying true? Is their mission one that is rooted in some sort of magical reality where they have been given actual visions of the apocalypse and now they are carrying out this horrific action? Um, And that question and the way um, this story circles back to it time and again to take another pass at it and to analyze it and to look at um, how Eric and Andrew are resisting it and then it'll look at the way that they, that there's evidence that continues to mount um and yet w- even if some of what they're saying might be true how does that affect how we feel about the situation and what they're actually doing and i think all of that's essential to the story and it's the right thing to be set up here um it's the parts that follow where we start to take that central question and provide answers that where I start to get frustrated. So so right now, like, I don't have a lot of criticism. Everything's been working so well. You know, I think Rupert Grint, um, again, as the first one to go, um, I think it's a startling moment. His is the most brutal death as far as, like, what we actually see on screen, I feel like, because we see the blood and the ma- mask yeah. a little bit. It's not... Maybe t- Leonard. It's not totally brutal. Well, Leonard, even, they look away when he cuts his throat, like, later. Yeah, so, like, we see some bloods. Like, we see some falling. blood. Yeah, yeah. it's... It, it's very mild, honestly, that from what I would have expected, especially in like a home invasion style story. I feel like they tend to be more brutal, um, you know, which like, again, people have mixed feelings about home invasion movies in general. Um, so I can understand trying to be different here. But um, I think the differences aren't in that part of the genre. It's in the other part of the genre that where the differences should be. I was expecting much more violence because of the nature of how graphic the story was, especially. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is like serious and surprising, very surprising. Whereas this felt less surprising to me, well, obviously, because I knew, ways. but also much more tame because we don't see any like actual violence. It's more implied and that kind of thing. You know, it's happening, but... I wanted to see, like, for a horror film like this that is Home Invasion, you expect to see, like, something, you know. We need to see that go through his head. And this is shocking because you don't expect, in a setting like this, if you know nothing about the book, you don't expect that Rupert, uh, (laughs) sorry, Rupert Grant, uh, that Redmond, I should say, is going to be the first victim 
And so that's shocking in and of itself. And then you come, you combine the shock of who it's happening to with the shock of what you see. And it should be a truly startling moment in the film. And um, it's, it's somewhat there. It's one of the better ones, I'll say. But it still didn't quite rise to the level I wanted it to. Yeah, I really did like his, his portrayal of this like piece of shit person. Yeah. It is funny, right, that as I was saying before, like I, I think most people at a certain point will realize who he is. In the same way that um, Eric is supposed to, or no, sorry, Andrew is supposed to be like recognizing, oh, this is the guy who yeah. attacked me in yeah, Oban, and like a moment where it just clicks over in his head. But he's been a long time, and he looks way different now. And I love that they have an. It's like a kind of a meta thing to have him be the, the the guy portraying that role. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. That's that's a funny way to play with audience expectations like that. One other thing I want to talk about with this beginning before we get away from it, the grasshoppers in the jar metaphor. Um, I think is a really powerful one in the book very deliberately set up is a reason we start with it and they even describe it here in the movie and he says um you know i don't want them to get frightened we want to be able to study them she's writing down all their details it just feels like that metaphor gets abandoned and then it doesn't it really end up being similar to the scenario we see play out i don't know maybe similar but it doesn't it's not as close as it is um, so I don't think I think it's like you're still you're including a metaphor that you've you've kind of butchered with the changes you've made to the movie. Is yeah, what I'm trying to get. I at. can see, yeah, I can see that the the payoff too. There was a big moment in the book where when is like, oh my god, I forgot about the grasshoppers, and I thought that was a really like emotional moment where you get to see the innocence of a child, and and then Leonard maybe lying to you, yeah. and saying that he let him out when he was out there. Uh, but here, there's no, you know, we just see that he does not let them out. They sit in the jar. I don't think um, you ever see him again, do you? Do we even cut to it? There are a couple times, yeah. You did? Okay. I, I can't remember. This is the problem of only seeing a movie once and not being able to pause it. But yeah, it just felt like it, it didn't sell the metaphor as much as it should because it's such a central piece uh, to me. Yeah. Like you said, the scene in the house where they're breaking in, I thought that that was really scary. And it's and it's giving you the audience, if you, especially if you don't know the story, that feeling of helplessness that you're going to get in a story like this. Uh, everybody seems really violent and then they all get in there and then very quickly they're like, the nurse is trying to help and we didn't want to do this and we're, we're trying to help you. And then they sit them all down. Um, and just like the anger that specifically Andrew the and the actor gets to show off uh, at like, because Eric is concussed and that's sort of the big thing about his character is that the whole time he's possibly seeing things and he's also kind of trapped uh, and and like maybe not quite 100% there cognitively. And then you have Andrew who's trying to be everyone. He's trying to be the protector all at the same time. And he's like trapped in this chair. And I just thought a lot of that stuff worked for me in terms of like the feeling of helplessness. And um, he's like the only sane person in the room for a while here where he's just like calling out a bunch of the bullshit. And like, I love that part of Andrew. I love that part of him in the book. I'm frustrated that in the movie he's proven to be wrong. It, cha- it That completely changes how you feel about the character because if you watch the movie again, knowing that, it's like he's just wrong the whole time. That's a very frustrating thing to... to it's like understandably wrong, but still he's wrong. Whereas in the book, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like Shyamalan has a little bit of frustration towards religion. I think religion crops up in a bunch of his stories or at least the spirituality, death, something like that uh, pops up in, in a lot of his stuff. And... His his the way that he leaned into seemingly God in this movie was frustrating to me. Yeah, some sort of like Old Testament style God, I guess. 
Um, we're you know we're we're jumping to the end a little bit, but but not only do we lose the ambiguity, but like what is it? What is it for? What's the messaging? Because the messaging that I'm walking away with is is entirely different and something I don't agree with. Yeah. So yeah. I will get there. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. So when the family refuses to make a choice, the visitors sacrifice Redmond by covering his head with a cloth and beating him to death with their weapons. Eric, who is concussed, sees a figure of light as Redmond passes away. On the television, media reports show devastating mega tsunamis, which Leonard declares is the start of the apocalypse. Andrew realizes that he recognizes Redmond, whom he believes to be Rory O'Bannon, a homophobic man who had assaulted him in a bar years earlier, leading to Rory's imprisonment. They reveal that Redmond's death had unleashed the first disaster. The following day, the intruders sacrifice Adrian as the family remains indecisive once again. Disasters continue as a deadly flu virus, which is particularly dangerous for children, spreads across the world. Andrew insists that the disasters are coincidental and that the visitors were anticipating a pre-scheduled news broadcast. Andrew manages to escape, retrieves his gun from his car, and shoots at Sabrina until she flees. He finds Redmond's wallet and proves to Leonard that he was Rory. Injured from his attack with their tire slash, Andrew believes the four came in a truck nearby and suggests that they use it to escape. After Andrew and Eric lock Leonard in the bathroom, Sabrina breaks into the house and is shot fatally by Andrew. Okay, a lot to react to there. Did you see a figure? Because I just saw kind of no. like a like a like a flare of yellow light and like yeah. a reflection at one point. I never saw a figure on screen. No figures. Yep. Okay, but he says he saw one, which is the same as the book. Um, uh, I'm fine with that. You know, like uh, you know, that's that's a detail right out of the book, and I think should be in this movie. Um. And it does, I do like that it gives him this crisis of like, did I see something? Is it just the concussion? I don't know. Um, I think that was all portrayed well. Um, and then we get the, uh, we've already talked about um, Redmond's death, but then we get the scene on the TV, which <laughs> includes the Cannon Beach tsunami. Um, I I don't know. I, I thought just it looked okay. Like it, it wasn't super convincing there's something about the way the crowd just all stood there, you know, like watching the sea rise for a long time before anyone starts to scream and run. That was very unrealistic. I, I will give him props because the, I remember this in signs as well. Like the news footage sort of version of seeing like you see like an alien or something or you see like a tsunami. No, that hitting. scine in, the, in science in, is great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a fun way to to show it happening because you get to you get to muck up the screen a little bit too you get to make it look a little shitty it's a little handheldy and and that there's something really fun about that i don't think it looked great i don't think the tsunami looked great necessarily okay so then we get into some of the next stuff that happens right we see the next death um we see the death of adrian i thought it was pretty good this is one where i thought it was weird how much they didn't show because I felt like this would have been a horrifying moment because we kind of liked Adrian. Like, we'd met her a little bit. We'd heard her talk about her family. And I think this is the moment of, like, this movie could have been fucked up if we saw a pretty brutal death occur. And it's instead, it made it a decision to not be fucked up and to sort of give the audience the relief that the characters are not afforded. Yeah, again, it's rated R. Why wouldn't you lean into this? It's it's uh, That is what we're kind of going to see. And I think audiences are... are ready for that kind of thing i think you know 10 years ago if you're making this movie you might not show that stuff but this is kind of know, where man. especially There's some of the like craziest home invasion movies are like from like the 70s and 80s and stuff and they're some... sure yeah yeah but you, yeah <laughs> and, but like yeah. big those are b movies like big blockbuster kind of thing okay um 
audience general audiences are ready to see this kind of stuff they see it on tv all the time in prestige television so so to not show it in a film feels weird like you're kind of holding back clutching your pearls a little bit right i i this kind of leads me into something that i read which is Shyamalan's co-writers steve desmond and michael sherman didn't mince words when they were talking about the ending or some of the changes and they said quote it's just too damn dark and uh i heard i heard that and i thought well, you're kind of missing a lot of the intention of the story then. I don't know if you're the best to, to kind of adapt this material. I think it's like they're trying to make a thriller movie instead of a horror movie. Maybe. Uh, you know what I mean? Like this this movie is dark. It should be dark. Um, this scenario is incredibly dark. And the way you're doing it is, I don't know, in some ways darker to me because the... Oh God, I, I, I really want to talk about the ending. So <laughs> let's, 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 get, let's get there. But, um, man, I want to talk about the ending. Shyamalan himself argues that the film walks the line between optimistic and nihilistic. He says, the most important thing at the end of the day is that everybody puts themselves in the character's shoes. What would they have done? I feel that genre helps me tell emotional stories. I'm assuming he's talking about horror or or, uh, thrillers. I'm generally an optimistic guy, so I get to do really dark things, and the audience feels held by someone that isn't nihilistic. I can push pretty hard because you can feel the vocabulary is not from someone who's trying to hurt you. And I'm like really realizing like the fundamental differences between the fil- the artists here and the material they're adapting. Yeah. Didn't we talk about this last week? How one of the things I give Paul Trimble credit for is that as nice of a guy as he is in real life when you meet him, when you're reading his fiction, you're like, I this guy's capable of anything. And you don't know if you're in sa- You never know if you're safe while you're reading. And I feel like you shouldn't know if you're safe in a movie like this to to have it work. I think we're the audience for that. This yeah. is what I mentioned last week at the end of the episode when we were making predictions. Like I thought that there would be sort of a generalizing or like a sanitizing of the material a little bit to make it more palatable to general audiences and to a film going audience. I, I can agree that that happened and still be frustrated that it happened because I totally, don't, because yeah. I, I also think that that's the impetus behind the change, but I don't know that that always, the result is what people want. Sure. I, and I agree with you, yeah. I always think that the the result of a movie that's going to last and going to reach an audience that's going to love it is making a great movie. That should always be the first and foremost thing. And appeasement to some generalized audience who you assume certain things about is a frustrating f- way for a filmmaker to go about making these kind of decisions. Yeah. I, I think if I was to compare the the book and the film to, I think that with w- within the the writing community and the reading community, uh, people are looking for more experimentation. General general readers are looking for more experimentation. And I think that that's something that we come up against often. We'll have a filmmaker like Alex Garland that's willing to make something that's weird and experimental yeah. with something like Annihilation. Yeah, I, There are filmmakers who still haven't really made that leap or that doesn't fit their style or whatever that is. What a great comparison, though. <laughs> like, yeah. as someone who, who did the ex- polar opposite and clearly said, I don't care about the general audience i'm going to try and make the movie i want to make and it's going to it's going to be divisive and you know i'm going to live and die by it and like yeah that's what i want out of my movie making man yeah that's somebody who's operating in the same space that i think a lot of like authors want to and i think that that it one. just takes the film community a little they're lagged behind a little bit it takes a little bit there are the films that will reach these levels of storytelling and i think that it's a, it's a different ty- type of storytelling as well especially in this case it's an extreme example like i we we talked about how this was a novel that it's unlike anything i've read before which i appreciate and which i was seeking out as a reader yeah 
And this film feels more familiar than what we were wanting an adaptation to, or at least I was wanting an adaptation yeah. to be. It's less, to me, it's less interesting. And in some ways, I, I this movie is kind of darker in a weird way, and yeah. but not in like a not. It's not scarier, but I don't know, man. I don't know that this is actually like a you know feel good ending in any way. Let's read the ending so that we can yeah. discuss it in full. All right, so the next section, Leonard tricks Andrew into coming into the bathroom by making him think he escaped through the window and then overpowers him stealing the gun. Leonard sacrifices Sabrina and the broadcast shows spontaneous plane crashes occurring around the world. Realizing their time is nearly over, Leonard leads the three to the back deck as the sky darkens. He informs them that after his death, they will only have a few minutes to make a decision before it is too late. Leonard sacrifices himself by cutting his own throat. Upon his death, the sky becomes even darker and lightning strikes, causing fires and more planes to crash. Eric now believes that the events are real and that the intruders represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not wanting when to grow up in a destroyed world, Eric offers to himself as a sacrifice. He reveals that in the light during Redmond's sacrifice, he saw a vision of Andrew and an adult Wen. Eric feels that their family was chosen to make the sacrifice because their love was pure. Reluctantly, Andrew shoots and kills Eric before lightning strikes, setting the cabin on fire. Andrew and Wen find the visitor's truck with belongings that corroborated their stories. They drive to a crowded diner nearby where they watch news reports confirming that the disasters have subsided. Returning to the truck, the radio turns on and plays Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band, the song Eric played for them on their drive to the cabin. All right, man, so much to react to. Let's go through it a little bit more chronologically and then get to the ending. Um, we didn't talk much about Redmond and how um, he is identified as O'Bannon, the man who theoretically is the one who smashed the uh, bottle over the head of of, of uh, Alex. Well, and it was theoretical in the book. I think here it's fully confirmed. Of Andrew. I said Alex. I don't know why. Anyway, um, theoretical in the book. But again, they 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 decide here that it is true. There's proof. We see the, the ID. Um, and that was the first moment of ambiguity being stripped away. And when they did that, I went, oh, no, where are we going? Um, and because the the question of whether or not he was truly O'Bannon or not is so key. And it's weird because the re- revelation that he is the guy who performed a hate crime, and yet he is also part of this four horsemen of the apocalypse who have been called to perform this sacrifice or to facilitate the sacrifice that's a weird coincidence why would a god choose that person to be one of the ones to do it right because that seems to say that this was targeted but it's not this is where it's just getting so confusing like the movie so the these details make sense in the novel that paul tremblay wrote these details do not make sense in the film that we watched this reveal doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And then also, if it is a god, and there is a god that's been doing all of this, what's the fucking point of this person sacrificing themselves to save the humanity? At one point, there's someone says something like, maybe this is how it's always been. And that's that's the only theory that's even proposed as to like this being a thing. And I guess the idea is just that God is capricious and, and, and vile and wants to just like, twist people's arms off and make them do this and like i guess that comes back to the grasshoppers like god is just the kid like torturing grasshopper i don't don't know experimenting with them or whatever she said she was going to do learning about them yeah that's not a that's not a rosy ending that's horrifying 
Does he not like them because they're gay? I mean, if it's God and we're and we're saying it really was God doing it, yeah. and that's why maybe that's why they were chosen. Like this gets into some dark places, man. And then also like these four attackers met each other online, and there's a lot of similarities with real world death cults and their ideology and their belief that what they're doing is in like the name of the God they believe in. In the book, the ambiguity we are left with leaves the door open for the true belief that these characters felt, but also the the space of rational people who um, are caught up in it and are victims of that belief, and it leaves a space for the choice that is ultimately made in the book, which is to not sacrifice each other, big difference, Um and then see what happens. Like it's a rejection of the truth that these four purport to to hold, right? In the movie, you reveal that they are right. That these are real visions. That what they are doing is actually God's will. And that it's Eric and Andrew who just haven't ha- didn't get on board quickly enough, I guess. And let the, so much bad shit happen. That, to me, is a fundamentally different story than what Paul Trembay was telling. Like, this is just a different story. And, and, and it, the message is, like, we should believe, like, fundamentalist cult people because maybe they're right. Like, I, it's so fucked up. Like, they, I, get into I, the, they get into the argument of, like, Eric and Andrew. And, and I think it's Andrew is, like, they don't deserve it. Like, the world doesn't deserve it. They hate us. Why would we do this? For what God? For what, pur- you know, for what purpose? Yeah. And th- this gets into like with when surviving too. Like if you want to just soften the story a little bit. Yeah. Not having when die seems like a logical way to go. Yeah, I was actually kind of okay with that choice. That sure. was a, that yeah. was a change. I was going to talk about some changes I was okay with. That was one I saw coming. Because I was like, they're not going to yeah. kill a kid in this movie. Especially after they like made her just as lovable as she is in the book. And in this film, she does a great job. She's adorable. You're not going to kill that child. I will say that is one of the pieces of the change that has a domino effect that creates the movie we saw because the world ends for Eric and Andrew because Wynn dies. If Wynn doesn't die, the world doesn't end for them on a personal scale like it does in the book. And so now you're forced to like actually have the world ending for sure to make the end have any sort of stakes to it. Right. Not all three of them couldn't make it is based on the premise of the story. If you wanted there to be the ambiguity yeah. and everything, somebody had to die. So you could be like, maybe that sacrifice was good enough or well, they choose Eric to die instead. You know, fucked up part is that I thought that when she went and crawled into the, they were like, go get into the, one of the, the tree houses. I thought that it was going to get struck by lightning. and She's going to die. Yeah, that I way. think we were supposed to be worried about that. <laughs> um, so a couple of other just real quick things. I thought the planes falling out of the sky was sufficiently terrifying. The, that was oh, a terrifying. terrifying sequence. It looked scary as hell. Um, way more of them. We hear about tons more happening. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's really scary, right? You know, I was like, fuck, okay, okay, I'm with you. I thought the lightning bits were a little less convincing. I don't know why. It's just like the way it was shot, the way the lightning was just sporadically hitting, it felt kind of hokey to me. It was a weird, and then the fire... Some of the fire looked just very CGI. Um, the flaming cabin at the end. It was like, did we really need to burn the cabin down? I don't know. It was kind of a weird 
sequence of events there at the end. I just, you know, there there got to be a point, and I've, I feel like I've defended the film more than others would, and, and there got to be a point where this was where I was like, yeah, I'm not agreeing with a lot of the way that this is sort of co- coalescing and coming to the end here. Uh, it, it, I don't know if I can point to exactly where I began, but it, it started to snowball into like something I was not for. Now, I will say, given the material, I thought that Groff and Aldridge did great in that final scene with what they were given. I thought it was like powerful and emotional, but I wasn't on board with like how it was going down and the the like uh, the ultimate sacrifice that happens there doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Still, it doesn't make any sense. I, I still I'm still angry about it. Um, we don't see it. Again, like the, the the movie is choosing to spare the audience the thing that the characters, our main characters, are having to experience. We are being spared. Why? I, I don't think you should do that. That's just maybe a fundamental like belief I have in storytelling um, is that the audience should be there with the main characters. They're the main characters, who are people we've been following. So we don't want to look away when they're at their darkest moment. Um, and yeah, I, I think Eric and Andrew here, they're having this discussion and it doesn't even make any sense to me that Eric is able to convince Andrew to shoot him. He says, like, I believe, so shoot me. And that doesn't make any sense to me. If you believe, you should have to shoot me because... Yeah, I think there is a period where in this film they try to make it that Andrew, he is a believer at the end. Even though Eric, you know, that's the that's the thing that I don't get as well is that, like, the belief, the idea of belief. And that's sort of the some of the morality of the tale in both the, the book and the, the film is, like, the ideas of belief, what people believe and how it affects others and, and the, the way that that layers over top of each other, even like-minded individuals. And then you get here at the end, everyone's just a believer. Everyone believes because it's all really happening. And so, like, the, you're, that nuance, like... Okay, but even, even, if, even if I grant that Andrew is starting to believe... I think it's no argument that Eric is the one who truly believes, right? At the end, and Andrew is, like, more on the fence. So in this moment, if you're telling me one of us has got to shoot the other, the person who believes in the thing should be the one who has to pull the trigger because they're going to be the one who has to live with it the rest of their lives. And if they have their belief to, to like, carry that decision, then that is better than the person who doesn't believe in it already having to pull the trigger. And then now the rest of their life, they're going to have to deal with the repercussions of something they didn't even really believe in. Yeah. So to me, that was fundamentally, even at the end, they made the wrong decision. Yeah, that is interesting. I I maybe would have preferred that. But do you think that saves the movie for you? Or is that just a detail you would have? Yeah. All of these add up to where like it's just getting further and further away from like what I wanted from the ending here. All of this, I think that we're bringing into this is that we're comparing it to the book. That's what we do on the podcast. That's what we do here. But I'm curious, like if you were, if you were to do your absolute best, give me the perspective of the person that goes to see this movie with no baggage. This is what I was kind of afraid the book was when I heard about the premise and I thought about how it could play out. I heard that. So this is what I knew about it. I knew that it was these four people they set up a situation where somebody has to sacrifice the other. I heard that. I can't remember where I heard it first, but I heard that. I knew that. They believed it. The people in the cabin obviously don't. And now we have this, the scenario. How does it play out? And I was worried because I was I was struggling to see an ending that didn't feel like the ending of this movie. And the ending of this movie is not interesting to me. The ending of this movie is not what I want from a story like this. This ultimately is just like, eh, okay, this is, yeah. You you decided they they're essentially the movie becomes they are holy prophets chosen by God to carry out a terrible sacrifice. They're right the whole time. <laughs> the people are wrong, 
And I don't know, like, that's the story. That's the moral of the story at the end, I guess. And, you know, whether or not they can be happy. On a rewatch, the idea is, like, you'd have to be, like, on the side of the invaders. Right, because like, they're like, right. Okay, hopefully they, yeah, because they're right. And in fact, they, you know, more people die because Eric and Andrew take so long to get on board. It's very frustrating to me. But so I didn't see, just when I was when I heard the premise, I didn't see the ending that Paul Trimbley came up with. I loved it because because of that. It was something I didn't see, and the ambiguity leaves the room that I feel like is necessary for this story to work. Um, so, yeah, I much prefer the ending he came up with, um, and I think the movie he could have ended the way he did. I don't. I don't believe that it was impossible to make the movie in the same way he did it. I think it could have been done. No, I don't think it's impossible either. Yeah. I think that they felt it was too dark, like they said. I think it's a better movie. I disagree with them. I think it's a better movie to do it the way he did it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some small changes. Like having Leonard be the final surviving member and letting Dave Bautista have more moments to shine, great change. Fully on board with that change. There are changes that I like. Um, but yeah, it's it's the fundamental disagreement I have with the screenwriters, with M. Night Shyamalan, with whoever's decisions it was. Um, I think you've taken a setup that it took Paul Tremblay so much careful work to do to make it an interesting, subversive um, story that doesn't do the thing you expect it to do. And somehow, in my opinion, still felt satisfying even while being ambiguous. And you turned it into just something fundamentally less less interesting. And that ultimately just leaves me frustrated. And you know what it also reminds me of? There's like an attitude that I'll get from people when I talk about adaptations and I talk about running an adaptation podcast and they, they're like so eager to say, and I'm sure you've encountered this, like and the book's always better. Right. And it's kind of like a very, like, you know, just the book's going to be better. Right. Cause they're going to, they're going to butcher it when they make it into a movie. That's the attitude that most people come to adaptations with. Now we have seen many, many different kinds of adaptations that go completely against that um, over the course of the years doing this. But this one fits that to a T. This to me is that attitude of like, yeah, maybe the movie's fine, but it, it is nowhere near as good as the book. And that's how I ultimately feel about this one. It, it to me it took it took the setup and it took the um trappings and it then it then unfortunately just completely messed up the message, the themes. It it messed up the internal consistency and um sort of uh the the the, the plot made a certain sense for the story that Paul Tremblay was trying to tell. And it just did away with all of that and forced it into a formation that I don't think works and that I don't think makes sense for it. I think that that can serve as your, as your, what was better. Yeah. That's I think my, that, what that was, was better. pretty much all your points. So, so in terms of choosing book or movie here, I'm going to choose the book, but I, I'm going to give it more credit for just the fact that while it broke, I, I think the, the metaphor that we can draw here is like, you have this engine that's been like tuned perfectly and that's what Tremblay created. And then you have Shyamalan come in and want to do his own thing and change things and he's taking parts out. And the engine just doesn't run the same anymore. It's just like, it's it's a little clunkier. It's got like some of the same things going on. It's still going to move you around, but it's not this finely tuned thing that he created. And I think that like, it's a Shyamalan film. I think it's going to be somewhat interesting to film goers because they're going to they're going to see something that's pretty dark and it and it's got this like 
overbearing uh, supernatural entity that like if you call it God, you call it God, but you could just think that it's a, some entity that's ending the world and, and it like required a sacrifice. And I almost kind of if you're going to change it like he did, almost would prefer it to like leave the religion off the table and make it about like a monster because that's ultimately what it is. Uh, who's who's kind of attacking you at that situation. Didn't the final scene at the diner and the radio, wasn't that whole bit just so strange? It was weird. I, I did not know how I was supposed to feel. The, the scenario was playing out in a way that didn't even seem like it took itself seriously. The diner specifically, when they go into the diner, if somebody's on the phone, they're seeing like, oh, change the channel to the other apocalyptic event and, and show us that that one ended too. And planes are landing safely but then and someone's like oh I'm, I'm so glad this is over i think she even says on the phone like it's so heavy-handed and so they save the world they save the world and this this feels kind of problematic is like the gay person had to die to save the world feels problematic to me um, i agree <laughs> yeah and so the uh i will say the final scene with Wen and andrew in the truck the song coming on I'm fine with it. It's emotional. It's it's like I couldn't care less at that point. I the, didn't, the two, I, didn't the, like I, it. I think I, I think having the little girl turn the music on and it reminding her of her dad and then the dad the other dad not being able to process it or anything, shutting it off very quickly, and then him realizing that for the sake of her, I'll turn it back on. We can. I wish I could have reached in the screen one last time and turned it off before the movie ended. <laughs> because <laughs> the music, yeah, off. be no sad, more. be sad about what happened. The and, and, and they leave it on at the end, right? Because the implication is like ultimately we made the right decision is what that means. And I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't think, even though the world was saved, I still don't think this was the right decision. Um, well, and that's kind it, of the point of the story too, is of the book is it's like, is it better? Is, is it, is the world worth saving if you lose all of your entire world? And it's like, that's kind of not even close to the messaging that you get at this. I agree because ultimately it says like, yeah, you went through a lot and you made a hard, hard choice, yeah. but you should feel proud. Like, did you hear that lady on the phone? Like you should yeah. feel happy. You saved the world. Right. Good job. Yeah. And it's just, that's not really, uh, the, the that's not the story I wanted coming out of That's this. the story I was afraid the book was going to be. It really is. And and I'm so glad that that's not what the book is. So again, it's going to be my mission, I think, from now on, when anybody brings up this movie, to point people towards the book, because um, yeah. it's just way better. Well, I enjoyed going to the theater. I agree. You know, for, for better or for worse, it was, I'm looking I was, forward. While I was at the theater, I was thinking, like, I need to do this more. <laughs> Like I like watching the trailers. Like I love watching trailers, man. We had like, oh, I had like five best, trailers yeah. before the movie. I'm loving it. Yep. I'm eating some pretzels. Being at the theater is good. I didn't get any snacks. I should have, man, or brought some snacks and a little like pocket snacks. <laughs> Ooh, um, yeah. yeah, I should have. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about how I want to do it with friends more because I was there by myself, which is always kind of weird. I'm like, I like going to movies with friends. I want to do it more, and I was glad that I got out for it, you know. So ultimately, I'm glad we covered this project. You know, they can't all be home runs. I'm frustrated on Paul Tremblay's behalf because I feel like this movie had the potential to be a truly great horror film. And I know he has great taste in horror films. I know he does. And I know that he was hoping that this movie was going to be there. And it's going to be one of those movies that gets talked about in the same breath as The Shining. Right. And this could be his like carry. This could be his his, his arrival movie that like puts him on the map as this great um, author to be adapted because you get great films out of it. And unfortunately this ain't it. And I really hope he gets another chance soon because I think he has great material that can, that can lend itself to good adaptations. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, thinking of an author that has to like kind of, this is part of his legacy now. And, you know, and that's, you're just, you're, you're tied to that. And that's kind of wild to think about. And more people will always think of this movie than ever think of the book. That's just the nature of these adaptations. We've seen it a million times. The film industry is so huge. Most people see movies. 
So for the longest time, when someone hears Paul Tremblay, if they know what that name is, they're most likely going to connect it to Knock at the Cabin, the film. And that's frustrating to me because this is not the story he told. Well, that's why it's good to have readers, because I know we even in our, on our discord, we had some of our listeners talking about Head Full of Ghosts and how great it is. So, you know, it'd be cool to see that get adapted in the future. And it's you know, that's why we got to stand by good authors and, and, you know, champion both mediums. And I think film often sort of unfortunately overshadows. Well, and that's why we wanted to do this podcast, right? To be able to talk about this difference and to be able to talk about the decisions that went into it and um Ultimately, you know, this is a part of it. And th- and again, this is an attitude I hear a lot from people. And I think it's interesting that this one really lined up with that, like that sense that readers have that like the adaptation tends to kind of ruin it. This is one, in, in my opinion, that kind of did. And um, it sucks to say, I always want someone to have a spectacular adaptation and to have smart changes. And, you know, I, I, I want that for every author um, because I would want that myself. Uh, but yeah, so it's a bit of a bummer here ultimately that, that we didn't get that. But if you enjoyed our coverage of uh, Cabin at the End of the World and Knock at the Cabin, let us know in the form of a rating and review, whatever app you chose to listen on, whether that's Spotify or Apple or whatever else. If you're able to leave a review, we love to see them and it helps us get visibility and, and get the word out. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere at Ink to Film. And uh, yeah, let us know if you enjoyed this coverage, if you enjoyed the film maybe more than we did and, yeah. and you know, if you read the book. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, if you want to talk with us, one of the places we've been having a lot of discussions with our listeners recently is on our Discord. All you got to do is reach out. Just reach out anywhere and say, hey, I'd love to get a, a link to the Discord and we'll send you one. Um, we'd love to have you in there and chat with us. Um, also, if you wanted to support this podcast monetarily, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. We just released an episode on Return to Oz, which is a wild movie. We had a lot of fun talking about that. Um, and we put those out every month. So we'd love to have your support on there. And thank you to Dylan Owen for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So as we announced earlier, we are going to be off next week. Um, And then we will return for Rashomon and also stay tuned for Pinocchio in the future. I'll just drop that here at the very end. A little special preview. I'm excited for both. I can't wait to get into this. Yeah, yeah. That should be fun. All right. Until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.